This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the Tuesday Show. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and I'm thrilled that you tuned in to listen today. Uh, This is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program committed to taking your phone calls and answering your questions, questions about the Bible, uh, questions about church life, stuff going on in your life, anything and everything. All we need you to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. That's our main number. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And remember, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now banner at the top of the screen. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Let's get right to questions. We got Jim on line one from San Antonio. Thanks for calling, Jim. You're on the air. Hey, Pastor Ron, how are you? Jim, I'm doing well. Thank you. Oh, good. You know, this is such crazy <laughs> Yes, time. I can hear you fine. Okay. Um, you know, this is kind of in relationship to the rapture. Uh, we live in such crazy times. You know, we, we're we moving towards a cashless society. It's obvious. And uh, we are dealing with the onslaught of a vaccine passport and I'm trying to figure out if the if Revelations talks about specifically whether or not these events are before or after the rapture. Now, I do know, I think, if you can correct me, that after the rapture, the Antichrist and the false prophet present themselves. Before the rapture, Isaiah talks about uh, good will be evil and evil will be good. Um, I'm just trying to kind of get a feel for how things fit in with the revelations. I mean, I've read it. It's not an easy read for me. And uh wanted your uh, opinion on that. Yeah, I can do that, Jim. You know, it's interesting that um, Paula and I were just shopping. We, we actually went looking for an Easter dress for her uh, last week. And uh, we were shocked. Inventories were so low and, and there was almost no selection. But most of the stores wouldn't take cash. They had big signs, cards only. Um, it, it's an amazing thing. And you just see how we're being conditioned 
to accept the kinds of things that are going to take place. Now, here's the good news for your question, Jim. Uh, Those things are going to take place or have their fulfillment after the rapture of the church. Uh, Isaiah, you have to be careful with the Isaiah passage uh, in Isaiah chapter 5. He's talking about Israel in the times before the judgment of Babylon, but there's also a long-term fulfillment um, uh, in the end times, Paul says in Second Timothy chapter 3, that we're going to be living in a time very similar when, when uh, things go from terrible to worse. And that's exactly the time that we're living in. So let me give you a little bit of a timeline for the rapture. Um, the rapture could happen, Jim, as you've heard me say many times on this program, um, the, the rapture could happen at any moment. Um, once the rapture happens, the next thing that will happen on the prophetic calendar is that the man that we call the Antichrist will be revealed. Now, a lot of people try to spend a whole bunch of time um, trying to figure out who he is and and when are we going to see him. Well, we, we will never see him. Uh, we won't know who he is. He's I, I, I'm confident personally that he's alive um, now. I, that's how soon I think Jesus is coming. Uh, but but he won't be revealed until the church is taken out of the way. And then things really get bad. Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse that it's during this time that things would be like they were in the days of Noah, where every inclination of man's heart was only evil all the time. When the church is gone and the Holy Spirit using the church is no longer restraining evil, there's there's no one to say that's wrong or that's right, Um then then the world is going to go completely dark, completely dark, no light at all. And that's when things are going to get really, really bad. The mark of the beast uh, will occur then. We've got a lot of people worried about the vaccinations and, and is, am I taking the mark of the beast? You don't have to worry about that stuff because we're going to be gone before that stuff is implemented. And by the way, when people take the mark of the beast, in the book of Revelation, Jim, they take it knowing exactly what they're going to be, what they're doing. They know they're rejecting um, the God of the Bible, the God of heaven. Um, they, they know they're, they're committing their worship uh, to the man that we call the Antichrist, who is really empowered by the devil. So those are just things that um, we will never see, but all of those things are going to happen. What we're seeing now with this escalation into into darkness, this escalation into evil, Jim, is we're seeing uh, what Paul says when he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, mark this, Timothy, in the last days. And he's talking about the very last days. There will be perilous, the King James uses the word, uh, the NIV uses the word terrible times. Um, and then he describes the kind of lifestyle that will be prevalent on the earth. And that passage in 2 Timothy 3, beginning in the first verse, that passage, if you look at it and look at what's going on around us in the world, that passage is precisely what we see being fulfilled before our very eyes. Jesus said, (coughs) excuse me, when we see these things, these are the, excuse me, Jim, uh, when we see these things, those are the beginning of birth pains, um, but but, uh, the labor pains are going to start coming uh, more quickly, and we are going to be plunged into the darkness that we see. You know, people, I had somebody actually say to me, well, Pastor Ron, don't you have some encouraging news? I mean, shouldn't we have a positive outlook on life? Uh, Our our outlook on life comes from our position in Christ. 
But there is no positive outlook in these last days in terms of life. People say, well, things have got to get better. They don't. And the Bible says they won't. And we've got to be prepared for that. I think, Jim, this is a time of toughening up for Christians. I think especially Christians in the West and more particularly in the United States of America. We have been so spoiled and so absent any kind of real persecution that uh, I'm just not sure that there's a whole bunch of Western or United States Christians who are tough enough to to endure. I hope I'm wrong, but we've got a mission until Jesus calls us home, so we're going to be doing it. Jim, thank you for the call. I appreciate it very, very much. Thank you, Pastor Ron. Uh, okay, Jim, thank you. 340-9585, here is an anonymous question. Uh, Pastor Ron, I'm in a season of waiting on the Lord. I'm not sure how long it will last, but do you have any advice for me during this season? Uh, Anonymous, I do, and please don't misunderstand. I have no idea who you are, so this isn't personal. But I'm never sure what people mean when they say to me, I'm in a season of waiting on the Lord. There is no such thing in the Bible as a season of waiting on the Lord. Now, Patience is a fruit of the Spirit. When you're walking in the Spirit, you will be patient, waiting on being in the will of God. That will will be revealed step by step, day by day. But when people say to me, I'm in a season of waiting, I'm really not doing anything, um, and I always tell them, how can you justify that from the perspective of Scripture? And remember, we've got to measure everything against Scripture. And so my advice to you during this time is stop waiting and stop serving. I mean, start serving. Get busy. Stop just sitting around and waiting for God to meet you. But but God meets people when they're moving. There's a great Bible study you can do if you have a, a computer program, Bible program on your computer. Just Google the words or, or, or put in the concordance along the way or on the way or as they were going, those kind of things. It's, that's when Jesus appears to people. And so right now, wherever you go to church, get involved. You've got time to serve. God's going to meet you while you're serving, while you're using the gifts that he's given you. There is simply never an appropriate time. For a Christian to say, well, I'm not going to be serving now for a while because I'm, I'm just in a season and waiting on the Lord. Um, and, and usually what that means, and again, I don't know you, so this isn't about you, but usually when people say those kinds of things to me, they're using it to justify not doing anything. And as a believer, we're told never to grow weary in well-doing. I can imagine explaining to Jesus how we didn't use the gifts that God has given us. In fact, there's a parable of the talents about that. The the the, the one um, talents person, uh, I knew you were a hard man, so I buried mine and returned it to you. Jesus called that man a wicked, lazy servant. So um, whatever that means in the context of you asking this question, um, make it stop now. Every day ought to be, Lord, what about me and what about today? So that's the advice. Now, obviously, the, the advice also extends to being in your Bible, 
uh, talking uh, and walking with the Lord, spending a lot of time uh, with the Lord. If if this season of waiting is waiting for instructions, you're not going to get it. If you're not in the Word and you're not going to get the instructions, if you're not asking the Lord and then listening for his answer. But use the gifts God has given you. I tell my church all the time that God only promotes from within. And by that, when we prove faithful with what we've got, he gives us more. And so whatever this season of waiting is for you, just make it stop. Get busy serving the Lord. Um, Ministry can be tiring. Ministry can be um, difficult. And from a worldly perspective, it can at times be thankless. But it's always beneficial. And it's when you're serving that the power of God's Spirit, Acts 5.32 says, God gives the Holy Spirit to those who obey. And that, that context, the Holy Spirit and power. And if you're not being obedient to use the gifts that God has given you now, then there's no conceivable way that the Lord is going to give you any more information. So, Anonymous, I hope that makes sense to you. And again, please don't take it personal. Um, it's just a question that I've really never understood. We, we as Christians, we don't get time off. Now, God will always make sure that we have enough rest. God will always make sure that there's times to, to enjoy uh, your family or whatever else it is that you, you enjoy. But remember, he has to be the absolute priority in your life. If he's not the absolute priority in your life, then waiting for instructions from the Lord um, really isn't going to do you much good. Thank you very, very much. This one is from Natalie from our email inbox. And she said, is there a Bible concordance and a dictionary, a Bible dictionary that you recommend? Um, yeah, there is. I, I think the only concordance that makes any sense is the is Strong's concordance. Um, the backup on most Bible programs is Thayer's, and Thayer's is good in the sense that um, um, it, it, it explains in, in, in a little bit better detail in terms of of um, what the the uh, more appropriate meaning in English to the word would be. Um, there's also the Englishman's concordance. And and what's really good about that one, and in fact, I think it's a, it's a, a essential, Natalie, is it gives you the opportunity when you have the Strong's concordance number, and and it all is is um, circulating around that Strong's concordance number. That's why Strong's needs to be the concordance that you use. Um, it'll tell you how many times in the Bible and where it is that same. Hebrew word or Greek word is used. And so the Englishman's concordance is a really good study tool because you'll see a word and it doesn't seem like it makes sense in the context that you understand it. And then you'll see all the places it's translated other words in that passage. So the Strong's concordance and the Englishman's concordance. Uh, Bible Dictionary, Nelson's is a good one. Unger is a good one. Um, Natalie, I think what all of this stuff ought to be free on any computer Bible study program that you have. And I think anybody who still uses the, the paper concordance is wasting a whole bunch of time. 
I can do. Now, see, because of my vision, I can see stuff on my computer screen that I can't see. And Strong's Concordance is really tiny, tiny writing. Um, but but looking things up and reading when just with a click of a mouse, uh, you can find something so very, very quickly. So those are the, the, the important ones. Um, let me also, because I'm talking about computer programs, I think something else is the treasury of scripture knowledge. Um, I think that's also essential for Bible study. And it is free on every computer program uh, that I've seen. So, uh, you know, I, I marvel at uh, the old-time saints who spent hours and hours and hours and hours every day in the Word. Uh, they didn't have the tools that we have. Now, maybe the tools have made some of us a little bit lazy, but, um, boy, it sure, I, I can cover a lot of ground a lot more quickly than I could uh, before computers. Well, Paul and I, we, we didn't even have a computer until we got here, and it was a a year or so into uh, us being here when uh, somebody sent us a computer, just showed up on our doorstep. And, you know, I'm not computer literate, so I had to kind of stumble through it. So I use exactly the same thing. I use the PC Study Bible. Um, I, I use it because it it's it's so old, you can't get it. I've had to have our computer people really sort of hook up my computer system, um, jerry-rig it so that I could get it still uh, because it still has the 1984 NIV. My biggest complaint with uh, all of the programs and the updates is that they no longer carry the 1984 NIV. They only carry the 2011. And I just think that is absolutely awful. It's a horrible, horrible one. So Natalie, I hope that helps. Thank you very, very much. 340-9585 for your live calls. Our next question is from Raymond. He said, the Bible talks a lot about idolatry, but we don't have idols today. Um, is it talking about Catholics worshiping Mary or statues? Uh, no, it's not talking, Raymond, about Catholics at all. Um, although there are icons in in the Catholic Church or in the Orthodox Church, uh, that's really not what it's talking about today. An idol is anything that comes before Jesus. Now, we obviously have the golden calf incident in Exodus. Uh, we've got uh, all kinds of, of um, um, Asherah poles in the, in the Old Testament and, and high places. Um, uh, they worshipped gods, and all the gods had idols. Go to Acts chapter 17, when Paul is walking around uh, Greece, and, and he sees all of these idols everywhere. Um, so, so we're not talking about those kinds of idols, uh, at least not in 2021. However, um, for a lot of us, Raymond, we put our career before Jesus. Some of us put our families before Jesus. Um, some put having fun or hobbies before Jesus. And make no mistake, Raymond, all of those things are idols. And God is going to deal with you the same way he dealt with the Israelites when they were falling into, into idol worship. So modern-day idolatry is less about statues than it is about how we view Jesus and his role 
in and then through our lives. You know, Raymond, one of the things, and, and I can refer you to the Bible study I did when God called uh, Abraham. His name was Abram then. And Abram came from an idol-worshipping family. And, um, you know, they would have had idols, a, a place where their idols were, and they would set up uh, and make offerings to their idols. And and we know that Abraham was seeking God. He, he There was something in his heart that just said, you know, these idols, I made them with my own hands, or or uh, my, my father carved them, or they were fashioned out of stone. Um, and why am I worshiping them? Why am I offering sacrifices to them? And And over and over, his heart must have thought, there has to be more than this. A God can't be something that I made. And I think one day, he just came to that place where he cried out, God, there has to be more. And that's when he heard the voice of the God of the Bible. This was a personal God, God who knew his name. Imagine how it must have blown his mind that God knew his name. But you see, that's what all of us are longing for in our hearts. Instinctively, we know there's more out there. So that's kind of the difference between idolatry and Bible times and idolatry today, Raymond. And again, one last time, make no mistake, there are plenty of idols, plenty of idols out there for us today. We're inside five minutes now for this half of the program. This is an anonymous question. I am a believer but hate myself most of the time. What help is there for me? Um, you know, you don't know who you are in Christ. Now, I'm, I'm not doubting um, that you're a believer, but a true believer, a spirit-filled, a spirit-led Christian can't hate themselves. Now, I hate some things about myself, Anonymous. I hate that I fail. I hate that I, I got... My first instinct is to be sarcastic or cynical. I hate that. Um, but you see, I can overcome that because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. So please make the distinction between hating yourself and hating what you do. Paul said he hated what he did. Oh, wretched man that I am. But he knew that when he sinned, it wasn't him that sinned, but sin living in him. And that's appropriate to hate. However, when you understand how much you're loved by God, and if you even doubt it for a second, you've got real faith issues, Anonymous, based on what Jesus did for you, his proof. He died in your place. He took the punishment you deserved. He did that to prove to you once and for all that he loved you with an infinite love. And when you understand how much he loves you, you can't hate yourself. In his presence is the fullness of joy, we're told. The joy of the Lord is my strength. If you're in the will of God, Anonymous, it's even, I know this doesn't make sense linguistically, but it's even more impossible to hate yourself. 
Because in the will of God, Jesus is right there and he's smiling on you. My suspicion is, and again, I don't know who you are. This isn't personal, but my suspicion is that you're spending way too much time with you and not nearly enough time with Jesus. I imagine you're doing things or looking at things rather than finding out who Jesus is in your Bible. It's just impossible to hate yourself. I, again, I hate some things about me, but I love the fact and I'm grateful for the fact that I have the means to overcome those things that I hate. That's not me. That's sin living in me. And then all I need to do is say, Jesus, help. And he's right there to help. So he's your help. That's why Paul, when he said, oh, wretched man that I am, he said, who can deliver me from this body of death? And the very next verse in Romans 7 is, I thank my God through Jesus Christ. In other words, he's the deliverer. He's the rescuer. So you need sort of a perspective check. Set your mind, the place of decision, and your heart, the place of affection, on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's what Paul tells uh, the Colossians in chapter 3, the first two verses. If your mind is in heaven, again, that's the place you've decided to be. And if your heart, the place of affection, is there, you're going to find that your life is pretty rich and pretty full. Talk to your pastor. Get some help. We've got 30 minutes left in the Tuesday edition of the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program. 340-9585 is our main number. Here's a question from our email inbox from Chip. He says, Pastor Ron, when Jesus died on the cross, we know he went to paradise to preach the good news. Normally, preaching means that people either need to hear or want to better understand Scripture. Did the people in paradise need to hear the gospel to be saved, or was Jesus just proclaiming victory? Now, he has another point, but let me get to this question first. Actually, he didn't just go to paradise. Uh, Peter says that he was preaching to the saints who were disobedient in the days of Noah. So, Chip, this is, is, is just a victory proclamation. Um, he was fulfilling uh, at, at the end of, of uh, that particular dispensation. He was, he, I, I am who I said I was. This is the victory that proves it. And all who rejected Jesus Christ are in that place. Now, remember, in that place, Luke chapter 16, the abyss, and I think I need to be more specific when I'm using these terms because we get lots of confusion about hell and Hades and all those other things. Paradise, or Abraham's bosom, is the place where the Lazarus, the beggar, 
went after he died, um, and it was a place of comfort. It was it was paradise. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, "Today you'll be with me in paradise." Um, on the other side of that, separated by a big gulch, a chasm, um, was the place of torment, where the rich man uh, says, I- "I'm in fire. Let him cool my tongue. I'm in fire in this place." Uh, it's a place of eternal torment. Now, Jesus proclaimed victory to those who rejected him. And then, sort of the coup de grace of, of his victory proclamation, he emptied paradise and took the people in paradise to heaven with him. He led captivity captive, or in his train, we're told. In other words, they followed him. The way then had been made, access had been made for human beings to go to God. Jesus, when he said it's finished, he died for their sins and paid the full price. So now they could be set free. Now, paradise was a wonderful place, but it's nothing compared to what heaven is going to be like or what it's like to be in the presence of Jesus. So they didn't need to hear the gospel to be saved. There is no second chance. Your other point, it says, I've heard a point made that said Jesus will go down to preach the gospel to people in the other side uh, to give them a chance to repent. Is that true? And then could you explain each situation, paradise and the lake of fire, and how people find themselves in one place or another? No, there's no second chance. Hebrews 9.27 is very clear. It is appointed in the men once to die, and then face the judgment. So there's no second chance. Jesus will not go down there ever again. The only people down there are those who have rejected him, and he's going to leave them in that place of rejection for eternity. So there is no chance to repent. There's no purgatory-type place. The The place called paradise is empty. The place of torment is still full. So here's... Yes, we explain each situation. Paradise, um, I, I said, was empty. The lake of fire has not even been created yet. That comes at the end of the book of Revelation, at the end of the thousand year reign of Christ on earth. So the place, the abyss in the center of the earth, that too will be emptied. Um, death and Hades will deliver their, their, their dead. And uh, the second death, it's called in Revelation. The second death will be uh, the judgment where every knee will bow and every tongue confess. For some, it will be um, a, a wonderful moment of, of victory. For others, it will be the most horrifying moment, uh, a moment that will live forever into eternity. So the lake of fire doesn't come till after the 1,000 years um, on earth. Now, when the Great Tribulation starts there will be two people thrown into the lake of fire. That's when it's actually created by the Lord. And that's going to be the Antichrist, the false prophet, and they will be there for the full thousand years. After the thousand years, then, Chip, what's going to happen is all of the dead are going to be thrown into the lake of fire Um torment commensurate with the lives they live. In other words, it's going to be worse for some than for others. And uh, and then, of course, after Satan is let loose uh, 
after a short time, after the thousand years is over, he'll deceive people, and then he too will be cast once and forever into the lake of fire. And of course, his punishment will be uh, worse than, than anybody else's, of course. Now, you asked, how do people find themselves in one place or the other? It's simple. You have two choices, eternal life or eternal death. We call eternal death hell. Eternal life, we call that heaven. And the only criteria there, Chip, is whether or not you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you reject him in life, he honors that rejection in eternity. Remember, we all have a will. We all have to make a choice. God never violates our free will. So when somebody of their own free will rejects Jesus, I want nothing to do with you. I want to be independent of you. Then God will honor that will into eternity. And that's why we need to be out telling people about Jesus because the pain uh, about uh, that is just unthinkable. Unthinkable. Thank you, Chip. I appreciate it. Let's go. I thought we had a phone call. We don't. So here's a question from Anonymous. I know God hates birth control, but I've already had a vasectomy. Do I need to have it reversed now that I'm a Christian? I don't know why you think God hates birth control. Doesn't say that in our Bible. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with birth control. Now, God certainly hates abortion. Uh, I think God is not pleased when we don't ask Him what we want, what He wants us to do in terms of the number of kids that we have. But um, you need to understand um, that that there's no indication at all that God's angry because you had a vasectomy, and that means you do not have to have it reversed. Now that you're a Christian, it's just that simple. So, Anonymous, all the things that you've done before Christ, you, you, you indicate you're a fairly new believer, now that I'm a Christian, you said. All the things, the horrible things that you've done are forgiven, forgotten, they're as far from you as east is from west, and you don't have to worry. What you do now is say, Jesus, you saved me in spite of all of those things that I've done. And so now I'm yours, and I want to serve you with all of my heart, strength, soul, and mind. And the only thing God has for you, Anonymous, is a smile. Now, new believers, we always ask a lot of questions. Be discerning. The Spirit of God will help you about who you ask the questions to. Because this is really bad answers that you got. So God uh, doesn't hate birth control. Um, God loves you. He's crazy about you. And you need to be able to enjoy it. So Anonymous, get a Bible, read it. um, Be careful about who you're asking things from. Um, Sit down with your pastor at your church and talk about these kind of things. Questions are good. Curiosity is wonderful. But God does not hate birth control. Maddie asks, Why did God allow the devil in the garden when the world was good and nothing evil was there? Um, you know, we, we Maddie, we really can't question God's motives. We, we know God's motive was good, even though the devil is nothing but, but pure evil. But the reason God allowed the devil in the, in the garden, and, and by the way, This is the same thing, the reason Jesus allowed himself to be tempted face-to-face by the devil 
in the wilderness temptation immediately following his baptism. Everybody has a choice. Every human being, including Jesus, has a choice. And, and God, in the Garden of Eden, um, uh, it was perfect. Adam and Eve knew only God and only good. They didn't know there was a flip side of life because they, they were covered in the Shekinah glory of God. And so God, because they were humans and they had a will, God wants us all, including Adam and Eve, to exercise our free will to make a choice to love him. If he just ordered Adam and Eve to love him, that wouldn't be love. So God gave them an opportunity to, to make a choice. And every human being since Adam and Eve has had to make that same choice. And that's why he did it, uh, Maddie. Um, remember, when, when God said to Adam and Eve, he said to Adam, he said, um, I've given you every tree in the garden to eat from. The, the, we can't even begin to imagine the beauty the magnificence of the Garden of Eden. All of the fruit, all of the food, it's all yours. My heart to your heart. But there's one tree in the middle of the garden, just one tree in the middle of the garden. And he said, don't eat the fruit from that tree. And of course, that tree was, I call it a tree of choice. And we had to make that choice just like Adam and Eve had to make that choice. So Satan was just the instrument he used to give them the right to make their own choice. Thank you, Maddie, for the question. Let's go to Jimmy on line one from San Antonio. Jimmy, thanks for calling. We haven't heard from you for a bit. I know. I'm okay. Are you okay? <laughs> good. We're good. My wife is still in California. She'll be back next week. She's been there for two weeks and a half. So she's in Oceanside. Oh, yeah. so, uh, you just made me but, jealous. Uh, That's my vacation I'm, spot, as you know. Yeah, well, I miss her. I missed her the day after she left. So, anyway, I was going to ask you. Um, I was going to ask you. Can you hear me? Yep, hear you fine. Okay. Well, um, I have a Christian friend of mine, and uh, I asked him, "Do you believe that we're living in the last days?" And he told me, "No," because the prophecies have not all been fulfilled. Now, I believe that we are living in the last days because of all this mm -hmm. stuff that's going on. And, and I know the prophecies have been, some of the prophecies have been fulfilled. So, I don't know, how would you explain that? Jimmy, it's, it's, it's actually pretty simple. The only prophecies that haven't been fulfilled are those dealing with the, the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth and the day of the Lord, Jesus obviously hasn't come back yet um, uh, to, to establish his kingdom, but every other prophecy has been fulfilled uh, specifically as it was given. And, and um, I'll just throw out a number here that's probably 95% of all the prophecies have been fulfilled precisely. And I think we can make the, the, the conclusion that the, the last 5% that deal with the, the day of the Lord when Jesus returns and deal with the Great Tribulation and deal with 
uh, the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, those prophecies will also be fulfilled with complete specificity. So um, the, the the friend that you're talking to um, isn't isn't doesn't know what he's talking about in the sense that um, when he says all the prophecies have been fulfilled, well, Jesus returning to earth to establish his kingdom um, and and the things that surround that, like the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, those are the only prophecies that have been fulfilled. They are yet to be fulfilled. Another way to explain this to you, Jimmy, is in Daniel chapter 9. Um, Jesus, uh, we're told, um, we have the prophecy of his triumphal entry, uh, 173,880 days from the issuing of the decree to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. We know that was 445 B.C. from uh, Nehemiah chapter 2, the month of Nisan, in fact. And and so uh, Jesus, exactly on time, came rolling into Jerusalem um, at exactly the right time. Then, just as he said, uh, he would be handed over uh, to the Gentiles. He would die but he would raise again on the third day. That completes the 69 weeks of Daniel's 70 weeks. When Daniel says the angel interprets his dream, 70 weeks have been declared. Now, 70 weeks is 70 years or groups of seven years. So 69 of those weeks have been fulfilled. When Jesus came in to Jerusalem and then when he was crucified and risen from the dead, um, the, the last days began when he ascended into heaven in full view of, of large numbers of people. So what we've got is a break. It says after the 62 weeks, the seven weeks, that's 69 weeks, he, the Messiah, will be cut off with nothing. And, and nobody understood that. Nobody could understand that until Jesus came and was crucified. Being cut off with nothing means that only 69 of the 70 weeks have been fulfilled. So we are living in that time between the 69th and the 70th week. And the 70th week will begin with the rapture of the church. So, Jimmy, I hope that helps you. Thank you very, very much. Tell your wife we you, you whined a little bit on the radio because right. you missed her. <laughs> I let Paula go one time to... Okay, Jimmy. I let Paula go. Uh, bye-bye. I let Paula go to Hawaii one time. She was gone for two weeks. I just thought, I didn't, I, I didn't know what day it was. And when she came back, she was as bad as I was. I'm never going for that long away from you again. So I know what it's like to have your wife gone. Three four zero ninety five eighty five. Theo says in Matthew nineteen, Jesus told his disciples they would sit on twelve thrones in the millennium. Does Judas still have his throne? No, um, Matthew, he does not. Uh, Judas um, never belonged to Jesus. Um, he was the one. Jesus' own words: uh, "The son of perdition, doomed uh, for destruction from before the foundation of the world." Judas never had any place in the economy of God. He was chosen as a disciple, but never as an apostle. Uh, he had great privilege. Too much is given; much more is required. But he will not be on the throne. Uh, when Peter, before the the Holy Spirit fell upon the church. Using scripture, he said his place must be taken by another. 
and that's when they they looked at the requirements for being an apostle and um and there were two people that um fit the the requirements and then Matthias was named uh, by the casting of the lot so uh, Matthias will take the throne that Judas could have sat on had he believed in Jesus Christ so um they will sit on 12 thrones judging um, the nations of the earth. Um, there are 12 other thrones, by the way. Those are going to be the patriarchs of Israel. Um, so um, you see the 24 thrones, um, the lesser thrones, lesser than Jesus' throne in the book of Revelation. Good question, Matthew. Thank you. Or Theo, I'm sorry. Thank you very, very much. Uh, Walt asks, can you explain what Jesus meant in his wide and narrow roads speech? It's pretty straightforward, Walt. Matthew chapter 7, beginning verse 13, he said, um, enter through the narrow gate, uh, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Here's the whole import, the whole world, Walt is going to hell. That's the, the the wide gate and the broad road. Plenty of room, and people are taking that 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 choice or making that choice, and and they're going to be uh, end up uh, being destroyed uh, forever and ever and ever. Destroyed doesn't mean dead. The second death is a spiritual death. And it means because we are eternal beings, we're going to live somewhere forever. That means that we will be in torment or those people will be in torment forever and ever. And and when he says enter through the narrow gate, he explains, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Now, the troubling part about this, Walt, is what he means. And this is a very literal this isn't a, a parable. This isn't a story. This is instruction. If you find yourself going with the flow of the people in this world, then you're going to end up destroyed. Uh, if you take the narrow road, if you, you, you go through the small gate, um, you're going to go to heaven and you're going to find that there's not a lot of people there, relatively speaking. Now, obviously, we know there's going to be multiplied billions of people in heaven throughout the time uh, of, of man's history. Uh, but compared to the numbers of people that are going to be destroyed, um, it's not even close. And that's a really troubling thing for us to wrap our, our minds around. I mean, we think, well, what's the point if, if more people are going to hell? Well, the whole point of us being here, Walt, is that we would tell people how to find that narrow gate. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. The problem is our human nature, we hate that. We absolutely hate that. We, 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 we want the freedom to make choices that please our flesh and, and we, we demand that God's going to be okay with it. And Jesus is just warning him, that's never going to happen. That's never going to happen. So, Walt, that's what he means, and I think it's pretty straightforward. I hope I explained it well. Okay, now we're about four minutes left for the program. Dennis wants to know, Pastor Ron, what action should churches be taking in light of H.R. 5 
and other actions currently being taken by the government. Um, Dennis, churches should not react to things. Christians should not react to things. We have a job. Our job description is given to us, and it's very specific. Go out and make disciples of people everywhere, telling them about Jesus, delivering the gospel message. What we should do, because of the things that government in our nation is doing, is first pray for our governors to be wise and to, and to make godly decisions, which means we need to pray for them to get saved. But the one thing that we need to remember, we're, we're, we're operating from a position of faith, a position of victory. And my Bible, your Bible, Dennis, says that the gates of hell will not prevail over God's church. When, when we're done, Jesus is going to take us out of here. We're going to be raptured. But until that time, um, we still have work to do. H.R. 5, of course, is the, called the Equality Act. And uh, it has already been passed by one House of Congress. I'm confident it will be passed by the Senate. Uh, and I'm confident that it will be signed into law by the President of the United States. I'm also confident, because the Supreme Court has already ruled precedence on this, that it will be declared unconstitutional uh, in terms of the way it affects religious organizations. Um, so here's what we got to do. We got to vote for new people. That's all. That's really all we can do. We have a representative form of government, and um, um, you know, we as Christians, um, we have a say so in who's putting who's who's put into those offices. Um, but when the government is even against church, they're not fighting against us. They're fighting against God, and we need to understand that Jesus is with us. And we got to keep our focus in these last days. The focus is the people who are lost. I always call them the lost, the hurting, the hungry, the broken, the needy, the confused, and the fearful. That needs to be our focus, not what Washington is doing. That does not mean we can't have an opinion about it. It does not mean that we shouldn't participate in the, in the, the political process. What it means is that when Christians start putting their hope in governments or governors then we've sort of lost sight of which kingdom we really do belong to. So, Dennis, it's not going to be um, good. You know, um, I, I was just listening to a friend of mine today who was talking about the extraordinary uh, measures that he's had to go to. He's in Bangor, Maine. The extraordinary measures that they've had to go to um, um, to, to sue. They sued the state and the governor of the state uh, because they refuse to allow any congregating uh, together. Um, you know, there's a time when civil disobedience is acceptable. Uh, I think for churches that are closed now, I'm still amazed at how many churches are closes, closed, especially here in Texas when every church should be open. And yet, we have to make that choice too. God, trust the Lord, Dennis. Hey, thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to The Word to Stand Up for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Lord willing, I'll be back with you tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4 
And Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.